are, if, if you're new this morning uh, or just picking up the series that we're in, we, we are working our way through this ancient letter that was written uh, by an anonymous author a couple of thousand years ago to a group of Italian uh, Christ followers in the middle of the first century in Rome. And uh, that letter has found its way into our New Testament eventually as the scriptures were put together. And we now know it as the book of Hebrews. And this is the letter that we are exploring at Shore. I know that some of you have ordered these, uh, these books, these resources, Hebrews for Everyone, this commentary and the Life Group Study Guide. There's still a few of those that haven't been picked up yet, all right, so I'm holding them up here so you know if you put your name down. Um, I thought about maybe just throwing one out, you know, like free copy, like a rock concert type. You know, rock concerts, you give away like free CDs in church, we throw away free commentaries, you know. <laughs> Isn't that great? You're just lucky it's not a study Bible, you know. <laughs> that would be a killer. But uh, I'm not going to do that because these actually belong to someone, one of you. So I'm going to put them over here and just a reminder to you. Make sure that you come and grab those and hopefully that they, they help you. And just another reminder, keep reading in Hebrews. Keep uh, tracking along with us. Read a chapter a day if you can. Uh, we're up to this morning, chapter 4 in Hebrews. You can turn over there if you like. Uh, if, if you were here last week, just to give you just the briefest recap, uh, we, we talked about the way in which Hebrews 3 and 4 form this uh, Jewish, what we call a Jewish midrash, which is a principle of interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, so what you've got really is like a Christian uh, Jewish midrash going on in Hebrews 3 and 4, a midrash that's based on Psalm 95. And we didn't even read Psalm 95 last week because ultimately Psalm 95 is pointing us back to this ancient story embedded back in the book of Numbers, the story about the Israelites in the desert of Paran crossing over into the land of Canaan. So we explored that a little bit. And uh, what, what we saw last week in chapter 3 of Hebrews is that the author is particularly focused on the very first word of that quote from Psalm 95. Can you remember what it was? Today. Yeah, not so. All right, we, we sorted that out last week, didn't we? Not so. Can't do much with so, but today, a little bit more significance there. Today, and we talked about the way, you know, today, every day, the story is being re-narrated in our lives, and we, and, we, and we have a choice to face about how we contend with these giants in our lives that come against us. When you move into chapter 4 of Hebrews, what happens is that the author shifts his focus a little bit and starts to focus in on the very last word of this quotation from Psalm 95. If you've got your Bibles open and you can see it there, Yell out what that word is if, you, if you've got it. Rest. Yeah, that's right. So he's moving his focus. Now he's dealing with the whole story, but what he's really interested in, in chapter 4, and this is where we're at today, is this idea of rest. Rest. And what he's going to show us is that when the Bible talks about rest, and particularly when this, para, this uh, Psalm 95 and Numbers 13 and 14 and so on, when God talks about entering my rest, there's more going on here than just the idea of resting in the land. There's a broader concept at work. And in fact, what the author of Hebrews starts to unwrap in chapter 4 is that there are, in fact, four rests. Four rests that we can trace through the Scriptures, and they, they sort of represent different historical periods, if you like. And as you string these together, um, and this has been fascinating for me as I've studied this, it, it starts to give you a really fresh and interesting perspective on the whole story of God's redemptive work on planet Earth to understand what God has been doing with humanity in terms of rest. It's just not a way that we think about it. And this is the beauty, I think, of preaching systematically through the Scriptures. You just encounter passages like this that would otherwise probably never see the light of day, and they start to just breathe some fresh insight into things uh, for us. So, 
we have here in Hebrews 4 this idea of four rests. And we are just going to sort of look over the author of Hebrews' shoulder this morning and trace out with him these four rests as he works his way through, and we'll see where we end up, okay? The first one of these, if you have a Bible, pull it out, Hebrews chapter 4, the first of these rests is mentioned or alluded to in verse 3 and 4. Let me read these verses to you from Hebrews 4. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now here is where he, he makes mention of this first rest. And yet, his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Always in Hebrews, you've got to have your eyes open to the fact that the author is constantly going back to the Old Testament, constantly pulling things out. Sometimes just there's echoes of it. Sometimes it's explicit quotations. And here what he is doing, although talking about Psalm 95, he's going right back to Genesis chapter 2 and pulling this phrase out from the original accounts of creation. So flick back over there. Let's just briefly read where he's going with this. In Genesis 2, he quotes from verse 2 and 3 of Genesis 2, which say this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So here's this picture of God creating the cosmos, the whole universe and the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, he takes a rest. In popular sort of thought, the way in which we often conceptualize this is God has been working really, really hard for six days. He's been slogging his guts out. Six days is not a lot of time to create the whole universe. So he just, you know, goes at it hammer and tongs. By the end of day six, he's finally, finally created everything. So on day seven, he finally kicks back in heaven. He's just probably put a fresh coat of paint on it. And he just sort of finally needs a chance to recharge his batteries because he's completely exhausted and depleted from these six days of creation. Now, I know you're very smart people, and when you start thinking about that, it really does start to fall apart, doesn't it, as a theory? Because if God is any God at all, he's not going to get tired, is he? He's not going to, get, he's not going to have his batteries run down and need to just take a day off to recharge his battery. This is not what we're talking about. The rest, here's what's critical, and this becomes more important later on too. The rest that God experienced on the seventh day of creation was not about inactivity. It was about completion. Okay? It wasn't that God just sat around idly in this big hammock up in heaven and did nothing, just twiddling his thumbs all day. It was that he had brought, by the stage, his creating work to an end. His work of creating heaven and earth had finished, and he was now able to enjoy the rest of having completed that. God is always active. He was active on the seventh day. He's been active ever since, upholding all things by his powerful world, word, sustaining the world. You know, the New Testament talks about everything is from him and through him and to him, and God is constantly involved and active in the world. And yet, at the same time, God is resting. He rested on the seventh day, and he's been resting since because he has finished the work of creation and God is enjoying even now it's interesting to think about it God is enjoying a rest not an activity but the rest of having completed his works so this is the first rest we can call this rest creation rest right back at the beginning of the Bible and the author goes back there and starts there now the second rest back to Hebrews is a much more familiar one and we spent most of last week dealing with it so we're not going to spend a long time today 
But look at verse 5 of chapter 4 in Hebrews. And again, he says, in the passage above, which is Psalm 95, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Now that's, again, straight out of Psalm 95. It's alluding back to the numbers narrative. And the idea here, the second rest that the author is talking about, is the rest of the land of Canaan. The rest of the promised land. When God described this land that would be flowing with milk and honey for his people, he described it as a land of rest. Again, not that the Israelites, when they inherited this land, would be inactive. They had to set up an economy. They had to set up agricultural systems and so on. But they would be, be completed, all of their wandering in the wilderness. They will have brought this desert pilgrimage to an end and have completed that part of their experience and be able to enjoy their own land and the freedom of Canaan as their own possession. So Canaan is the second type of rest that the author talks about. And he's, he's showing the way how even in the scriptures, just as the creation rest was described with this word rest, so God used that same term to describe the land in which he would bring his people. In a sense, it was a miniature form of that rest that God himself enjoyed, just a little portion of God's own rest here on earth in the land of Canaan. And we know from, from the narrative we talked about last week that under Moses' leadership, the Israelites didn't enter that rest. But later on, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, under Joshua's leadership, they finally got across. They finally got in and did settle there. It wasn't a perfect uh, settlement by any means, but they eventually did get in and did prosper, at least temporarily, in the land. So this is the second type of rest. Now, here's where it gets interesting, all right? Not that it hasn't been interesting so far. I know you're riveted, but here we are. In verse 6 of Hebrews 4, what starts to happen here is that the author begins hinting at the fact that the Canaan rest was not the end of the story. That when God talked about entering my rest and all this sort of stuff, he had more in mind than just the land. He had more in mind than just Numbers 13 and 14, or even the narrative of Joshua leading his people into the promised land. Let's read these verses. Verse 6, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, that's the Israelites we read about last week, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Really, all that's going on here is the author is just doing some really clever Bible study. And he's just simply saying this. If all God was talking about when he talked about entering my rest was the land of Canaan, if that's where the whole story of rest ended, then how come centuries later in the book of Psalms, when David's writing, he seems to be describing this rest as something that's not just a past historical reality, but something that is in the present and still available and still remains for the people of God. If rest was just way back then, how is David talking about today? How is David talking about a new day of rest? The only logical conclusion that we can find is right here in verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the first time the word Sabbath is used in this passage, and we'll come back to that word in a little while. 
But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the land of Canaan as the rest for God's people always pointed ahead to a third type of rest. And this rest was realized in Jesus Christ. We can call this rest simply the Jesus rest, Jesus' own rest. Now, admittedly, Jesus is not mentioned in, in these verses in Hebrews 4, but hopefully, hopefully, we've gone through enough of Hebrews now for you to realize that this is the whole point. That almost in every chapter, almost in every paragraph of Hebrews, the author is constructing a new way of thinking about Jesus, a new way of getting to Jesus. He, he's been described as the prophet, the priest, the king, greater than the angels, the true human being, all of these things. And now in Hebrews 4, the author is painting a picture of Jesus as our true rest. Jesus as our true Sabbath rest. That's what this verse is telling us. This takes a little bit of getting your head around this idea of Jesus as our rest. How is it that Jesus can be a rest for you and I? Well, this is explained a little bit more in verse 10. Keep press on here. For those who enter God's rest also rest from their own work, just as God did from His. It's important here that you don't think about that word work as just doing stuff, like the kind of work that you're going to go and do tomorrow morning that we do during the week. This is not talking about physical work. This is the work of trying and making effort, an attitude, a way of living whereby we try to earn brownie points with God through our own effort. We try and live and try to do certain things in order to maybe gain a bit of leverage with God, in order to work our way into His good graces. That if I can just do enough, if I can just try hard enough, if I can read my Bible enough, if I go to church enough, if I pray enough, if I share my faith enough, maybe then God will answer my prayers. Maybe then God will heal me or my family member. Maybe then God will love me a bit more. Maybe then I'll feel better about myself. Maybe then I'll feel more equipped to go and do this thing God's calling me to do. If I can just meet this expectation, if I can just put this sin to death, if I can just keep that person happy, it's this idea of working and trying and living as so many of us do on this performance treadmill in our lives where it's all about the effort that we can put in and better or worse it makes us feel about ourselves at the end of it in terms of how we stand before God. And what Hebrews 4 is telling us is that when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they do two things. The first is, as they submit their life to Him, they acknowledge a huge chasm between them and God, an absolutely uncrossable and unbridgeable chasm. And the only reason, friends, that we, you and I, even entertain this idea that we could somehow do things or think things or say things that would gain us some sort of favor with God is because we have not yet grappled hard enough with the reality of sin in our lives. And we have not yet internalized the seriousness of what sin has done to us and how it has diminished so significantly our character and our very human nature. When you really understand the picture that the Bible paints of just how corrupt we are as human beings, that thought that somehow I can do something that's going to make God smile upon me vanishes from our mind because we realize how ridiculous that is in the light of His glory and our sinfulness. And yet in the same breath, a person coming to Christ secondly acknowledges the absolute sufficiency of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us. That on the cross, He completely bridged this chasm. That Christ has completed all the work on our behalf that was necessary to bring us back 
to God. And the other reason that you and I think that somehow we can work our way to God is because we haven't yet realized the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us, the fullness of his sacrifice, the finality of his offering on the cross. It's because somehow we live with this thought that that's incomplete, that's not enough, that's substandard, that you and I try and put in this effort and live with all these ought to, ought to, must do, if only, if only, if only in our life that just plague us with guilt, plague us with fear, plague us with uh, obligation, because we haven't yet really internalized, though we might know it up here, the sufficiency and the fullness of what Christ has done for us, that there is nothing anymore you and I can do to please, to earn favor with, to gain leverage with, to get into the good books of our Heavenly Father. All that's left for us to do, friends, is rest. That's it. Rest. And it doesn't, now again, that doesn't mean inactivity, right? This is where it's important to remember back to this idea of rest we've been working with. Just as when God finished his work of creation, it wasn't about him being inactive. It wasn't about him just physically doing nothing, but it was about having brought to completion his creating work. And so it is, the author says, that when you come to Christ, we rest in the sense of basking in the freedom of grace and bathing in the liberty of having our conscience cleansed from dead and impotent works and just realizing the joy that it is to have Christ as our source of strength and standing before God. That's the type of rest that we are describing, that rest by which we know the wrath of the Father is fully spent on the Son and not on us, that he's borne our burdens and he's borne them to the end. Just needs to sink in, doesn't it? Just needs to move from head to heart, I think, for a lot of us. Easy to have the right answers, easy to trot out the cliches, but how real is this to us? How real is that rest? Now, there's a question that comes up uh, when we start dealing with this topic. It's not one that the author of Hebrews addresses directly, but I, I want to just deal with it for a couple of minutes. And it's this idea of the Sabbath. Because when you start reading verses like this, that, that God has provided us a new Sabbath rest, it, it triggers uh, many of us to ask, well, what about the Sabbath? What about the Jewish Sabbath? What about Sunday being the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff? Now, what, what is critical to realize with this is that the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, always, always, always was a foreshadowing of what was coming down the track in Christ. This is spelled out pretty clearly for us in Colossians chapter 2. Turn there for just a second. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, this is Paul, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What Paul is saying is the Sabbath that was instituted among the people of Israel was always a foreshadowing. It always pointed towards something greater than itself. This is not an unusual concept because it is the same as pretty much every other ordinance in the Old Testament. The temple, the law, the dietary regulations, animal sacrifices, all of these things, they were all instituted as foreshadowings, foretastes of what was coming with Jesus Christ, who fulfilled them all. And so we get to Christ and what we find in the New Testament is the Sabbath is no longer a a, a day, it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ who now provides Sabbath rest for his people. It's not about taking a day of rest, it's about living a life 
of rest. Not taking a day off, but taking a life off. You see, now, I know there are a lot of objections. You say, well, does that mean I just should go to work tomorrow and tell my boss, okay, I'm working seven days a week now because my pastor said I don't get a Sabbath anymore, so that's it, clock me in. You know, that's not what I'm saying. Let me say up front, I think it's a great idea to take a day off a week. I try and do it myself on Mondays. It's my day off. I try and get as far away from all of you as I can. All right? I love you. I'm not serious. But that, that, that is, if you want to call it a, a Sabbath, that is a day of rest for me. It is a time of just recharging and so on. And I take my hat off to people that do this. I think it's very, very valuable. I think you can draw biblical support from it, from passages where we see Jesus retreating from the crowds, these sorts of things. It's very, very healthy to do. And people put boundaries around these days in terms of not, not working, not playing competitive sport. I think that's great. Take my hat off to the Michael Joneses of the world. And yet, I think the point of Hebrews 4 is that that is not the biblical idea of a Sabbath. That doesn't make it wrong to take a day off. But the Sabbath itself is now Christ. Because Christ alone has provided us rest. Now you say, well, hang on though, because the Sabbath goes right back past that. The Sabbath goes back to the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Sabbath goes back, doesn't it, to creation. Because that's where God worked for six and rested for one. Absolutely. And so the question becomes, what was it that God was telling us by working for six days and resting for seven. Let's be honest, he didn't have to. Could God not have just said whammo and the whole thing was created? Absolutely. God did this for our benefit, working for six, resting for one. What was the pattern? What was the idea? What was he telling us? Was he really just giving us a model for our working week? That leaves me a little bit underwhelmed, to be honest. That may be part of it. But I wonder whether back in creation, embedded in the first two chapters of Genesis, is the earliest and perhaps richest foretaste of what was coming down the road with Christ. This pattern of working and then resting, of activity and then completion, foreshadowing in this sublime kind of way the way in which our Saviour Jesus Christ would work on our behalf and then bring to completion all of our works. And so when we get to the institution of the Jewish Sabbath, the point is not simply that you would work for six days and rest for one. This was a means to an end. This was a way of lifting the eyes of Israel to focus on this pattern of work and then rest, which would be spiritualized in Christ, who provides for his people true rest. Not physical rest, but a spiritual rest of having our sin paid for and receiving from the Lord's hand mercy, forgiveness, healing, and restoration. Christ now is our Sabbath rest. And so the onus is on us to learn how to appropriate that rest in our lives, to learn how to make every single day a Sabbath. Again, let me say, wonderful idea to take a day off a week, and yet the danger in reducing the Sabbath to one 24-hour period in seven is that we can so easily dichotomize our lives into the spiritual and the secular. I'll take a day for God, and then what will I do with the other six? Those are for me. That's my life. Now, I know that Christians don't always do this, and just because Christians take a Sabbath day doesn't mean they fall into this pattern of thinking. But I think this is why the author is bringing out the idea so strongly of Christ as our Sabbath emphasizing to us every single day is a day of rest. Every single day we have the presence of the Spirit who comforts us and restores us and forgives us. Now this takes effort. 
And this is the paradox we find as we wrap up this, this uh, passage in verse 11 of Hebrews 4. The author says this, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. It's, it's, it's quite strange to our ears that on, on one hand he would say, we rest from all our work, and then in virtually the same breath, now make every effort to enter that rest. But as you start processing this, it actually becomes quite natural, doesn't it? Because it does take effort not to be self-reliant. It does take effort not to be self-sufficient. It does take effort to break those habits that we are so ingrained with and so programmed with where it's about what I do and about what I can achieve and my effort. It takes effort for me, even standing here before you this morning. I need to constantly remind myself that even as I'm talking to you now, there's another level on which I'm resting in the grace of Christ. There's another level on which I'm resting in the sufficiency of God's grace, knowing that there is nothing about me that's qualified to be up here teaching. There's nothing about me that's worthy to do this. I stand here only because of the grace of Jesus Christ in my life. And I'm developing this little ritual on, on Sunday morning when I just spend, try and spend time in prayer before coming down here to preach to myself some verses from uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And it usually goes a bit like this. God, I pray that when I come before your people this morning, I wouldn't come with eloquence or superior testimony as I proclaim to them the message about Christ, because I resolve to know nothing while I'm among them except Christ and him crucified, so that their faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's not a perfect recitation. Now listen, I don't say that to impress you with my humility. I really don't. I, I, and, and I was kind of reluctant to even say that because I know how this can look. Oh, aren't you super spiritual? No, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint that picture. Please see my heart in this. But what I'm saying to you is that's how it looks for me in this particular task of preaching. That's what I've had to do, to try, and I'm on the journey. I'm only just starting. I'm an infant. But this is what I'm trying to do, to rest and, and, and rest in the sufficiency of Christ. And so it, it remains for you to think about how is this appropriated in your own life. One of the greatest pieces of advice I heard on this from Jerry Bridges was preach the gospel to yourself every day. Just, just remind, You actually have to re-educate yourself. Remind yourself. Tell your soul. Tell your heart, I am not saved today by what I do. There's nothing I can do today that is going to make God love me anymore. There is nothing I can do that, today that is going to make God love me any less. I rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. And at any given moment, the only reason that God stays his judgment and pours his grace upon us is by his sheer mercy and sheer pleasure displayed for us in Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with me. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Now that doesn't mean we don't pursue a life of holiness. Of course we do. Paul talks about God's grace compelling us Forward, but it emerges from the bottomless well of resting in Christ. This produces a life of holiness and obedience far greater than anything that will be produced by your guilt and obligation and just striving in human effort. I know you're desperate to hear the fourth and final rest. Let me give it to you very quickly. It's hinted at, I think, in Hebrews 4. Not spelt out explicitly, but it's the rest of a new creation. And I think it's woven through what the author of Hebrews says about the rest we have in Christ. Because much as we do rest in Christ now, in the present, we know that this rest is incomplete, isn't it? We still contend with a human nature that pulls us away from that, that focuses us on me and my effort and what I can do for God and for others. And we live within a fallen and futile creation, 
a world order. And Paul describes it beautifully in Romans 8 as creation is crying out for liberation from its own bondage. Creation itself looks forward to that day when it will be liberated from its decay. And we know that as believers, we wait with bated breath for the appearing of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who one day will usher us into our full and final rest. When we will rest not only in the sufficiency of Christ, but even rest from, from the power of sin pulling at us in any form. And we will enjoy the rest of all creation on the new heaven on earth that God is creating. And on that day, our rest will be full. On that day, we'll bask in the direct presence of God. The Spirit's power will, will, will completely govern us. And there won't be this constant fighting between the flesh and the Spirit that we experience in the present. So we await that final rest. And yet in the present... Our, our uh, challenge, really, I guess, from Hebrews 4, is to learn the practice of rest. Not just physical rest, although that's obviously important, but I don't think that's the point of Hebrews 4. There's something much deeper going on here. The rest that Christ offers us. John Piper put it so eloquently when he said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That just takes a, a, you know, there's so much to soak up there. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Not when we are busiest for Him. Not when we're doing the most for Him, praying the most, reading the Bible the most, going to church the most, though those things are good and right, but when we are most satisfied in Him. And the question for us, for you and for me this morning, becomes how satisfied are we really in Christ? How much are we resting in him this morning how much are there those two levels going on in your life that at one level you're working eating sleeping living a fairly hectic life many of us racing from priority to priority with different things vying for our attention and yet the goal is that there would be a second level where even though we're busy and stretched we are at rest and we are aware we are cognizant of the the present spirit within us who provides for us that true rest. That is what taking a Sabbath is about, reprogramming our minds so that we would live out of grace and not out of this legalistic bondage that so many of us have become accustomed to, dwelling and soaking up the scriptures that speak of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us, that we'd know its fullness, that we'd know its finality to our core, and that would prevent us from thinking that we can add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's so countercultural, it's so opposite to the way we've grown up, so opposite to what we've been conditioned to think, that there just truly is nothing for you and I in a spiritual sense but to rest. It doesn't feel right. We feel guilty when we do it, but that is the world talking, friends. That is the system and the principalities of evil coming against us. Satan doesn't want you to rest. He wants you to feel that you can contribute to the kingdom of heaven in your own strength and your own effort. It's a battle to rest. It takes effort to rest, but it is a battle worth fighting because from that strength and from that power bubbles up a life of grace, a life walking in the presence of Christ where our character gradually conforms to him as we abide in the vine that fruit is produced over time. Let's learn to enjoy Christ as our Sabbath rest. Would you pray with me?